Yeah. So there, I think one of the real powers of QGIS is the expression engine, which is almost becoming a language into itself. So there are, you know, you'll, you'll run into the, the standard functions in that. So the expression engine is where, um, let's say you want to calculate values in a new field or something like that, um, or, or select features. Um, so the, with the expression engine, you get the standard character functions that let you parse characters or numeric functions for converting floating point to integer and things like that. But there, there are hundreds of other functions in there for dealing with color and fuzzy math and fuzzy logic, um, time, all, all sorts of things. So these functions can be um, also used with these things called data-defined override. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is Kurt Menke and he is an absolute expert in QGIS. He's written several books on the QGIS project and he's come along today to share his experience with the project, talk about how he got involved, share some insights to QGIS, things that you might not necessarily know even if you've been working with it for a while and, and where it might be heading as a project. Just a few short messages from me before we dive into the interview today. Um, firstly, consider subscribing to the show. I've got a whole bunch of great guests lined up for you, so if you're not subscribed already, consider doing that. That way, all the episodes will just be delivered to your podcast app and, and you won't miss out on any of the great content we've got coming up. Secondly, if you know anyone out there that might enjoy this podcast, uh, please share it with them. It would mean a lot to me personally and it would really help grow the show and help spread the word uh, about Geospatial. So that, that would be great if you do those two things. It would be amazing. So the, the last thing I want to mention is that Mapscaping, myself and my wife, have made some socks for you. So what we're doing with these socks is we're, we were looking for a way of supporting the podcast, of, of supporting the things that we're doing with it. It's taking an increasing amount of time. And please don't misunderstand me here. This is something I love doing, but I, I, I need to be able to support it in, in some way, shape or form. I'm not really into asking for donations from people. I really want to create something that would be useful, that would be a little bit unique. So we went on a limb and we made socks. Um, yeah, so if this is something you might be interested in, it's an ama- it would be amazing for us. It would really help support the podcast. And I hope it would be like a unique gift or, or something that you, you might be interested in wearing. So check it out. It's if you Google socks, mapscaping, or go to mapscaping.com and search for socks there. Yeah, we've got a couple of different pairs. It's been a really interesting project, making them, creating them, trying to find out what people like, what they might not want. And I would be really excited to, to hear your feedback on them. Anyway, please check them out. It'd be much appreciated. Okay, so let's let's dive into the interview with Kurt. Hi, Kurt. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for for taking the time to do this with me. Much appreciated. We've tried this a few times before, and it hasn't worked out for various reasons. So I am really hopeful that we can get through an entire interview today. Now, you are an expert in QGIS. And I've invited you along the show to tell us a little bit about QGIS as a project and perhaps where it's going in the future. So I think before we dive into that, maybe you could just tell us about how you got involved in the project and, and what your background looks like. Sure, absolutely. So I've been doing GIS for quite a while. And uh, I started, um, first downloaded QGIS in, I think it must have been 2005. It was at version 0.7, which was called Steamus. And, you know, at, at the time it was... Um, it, ha- it had moved beyond its its beginnings as a PostGIS viewer, but it still was pretty much just a data viewer. But I was really fascinated by it, so I kept following it. 
And by the time it got to 1.0, I was starting to see that it was becoming um, actually a really useful tool. I used to be at a university and I left the university position in 2008 and launched my business, which is called Bird's Eye View. And at that point, I started um, trying to base my business on open source software for various reasons. And the QGIS um, software just got better and better and better. And I've been relying on QGIS as my day-to-day desktop GIS now for, I don't know, five or six years at least. So as part of that, I'm a, you know, I'm a general consultant, but I'm also asked to um, do a lot of training these days in QGIS. So I've got, you know, built up quite a few training jobs over the last several years. And I think part of that is because I've also authored at this point, it's hard to believe, but I've authored six books on QGIS. And in this last year, in 2019, I authored one called Discover QGIS 3X, which is a large 400 page uh, workbook covering all the functions of QGIS. And then I also co-authored a book called QGIS for hydrological applications um, with a, a, a Dutch colleague of mine, Dr. Hans van der Quast. So um, yeah, I've been using QGIS for um, quite a few years and I, I really love it. Yeah, it, it is an amazing open source project. And speaking of open source, so QGIS, QGIS is, is free to download. People can just go out there and download it and start using it. And I'm assuming a lot of the listeners of this podcast are familiar with QGIS but the, as, as a workstation, as a tool. But what we're not so familiar with is perhaps the QGIS project. Could you speak a little bit about this? How does, what, what does that look like? How do these changes, how do, how do these updates come about? Right. So it's it's a piece of software that is kind of built from the grassroots, from the ground up by a community of developers. And most of these developers are people who are making their living providing services with QGIS. The project itself was incorporated as a nonprofit in 2016. Um, as it started to grow, they kind of needed to mature and you know, have a, a bank account and standard accounting practices and things like that. So, so that came along. So the project now is, is quite mature and has a massive community of people who, who use it and work on it in various aspects. So you mentioned that briefly there, that there's developers that are working on, on QGIS as a project, but, but they're also earning their living from it. Could you speak a little bit about how this, this open source economy works? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing because, um, you know, the QGIS project itself has a fairly modest budget if you compare it to something like I, I can't imagine what Esri's budget is these days. But um, the QGIS budget itself is, you know, around 150,000, 200,000 euros a year or something like that. But of course, the, the economy around QGIS is much larger because there are who knows how many, you know, thousands of users making money using QGIS around the world. And it's kind of unmeasurable in a sense, but um, it's large. And, you know, most of the people involved in the project are, like I said, providing some sort of service using QGIS, whether that's just general consulting or actual development of new features and plugins and things like that. So these people, of course, have a vested interest in making this the, the, the best of breed and the, the go-to geospatial product. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're using it, so they, they need it to, to work for their clients, their customers, and that's, you know, their, their focus. And I think that's, um, you know, another interesting aspect that I try to tell people about when I'm teaching an intro to QGIS course, for example, is that one of the real benefits of getting involved in any open source project like QGIS is that 
if there's something, a feature that you find lacking, that's not there that you wish it had, you can build it or hire someone to build it or write a plugin to fill that, you know, need. And so it, it's, uh, Anita Grazer, who is one of the, you know, big parts of the community, um, has called it a duocracy, which is, you know, kind of what I think of it as too. It's, it's if, if there's something there that you wish it had, you can make it happen, which is really an empowering experience. Absolutely. But I, I could imagine for a lot of people, it'd be a little bit overwhelming as well. Like, where, where do I start? And I realize now that with regards to the plugin environment in QGIS, there's a lot of documentation around it, but it still, it feels quite overwhelming to, to get going with something like that. Yeah, it's certainly not trivial. You know, um, the first time writing a plugin is um, an adventure for most people, I think. There is a lot of support, however. You know, there's, there's for example, if you're talking about plugins, there's a a plugin builder plugin, which will kind of stub out the basic code that you need in any plugin. And there's, there's generally a lot of documentation and support from the, the usual channels. Um, you know, uh, there's, there's a spatial community on Slack, there's um, Stack Overflow, there's um, listservs and things like that. You can get support for that kind of thing. And the community is generally you know very welcoming to um especially you know newcomers who are wanting to take on something like that and so there are people that are you know open to mentoring people yeah in in my few interactions i've had with the qgis community they've been incredibly welcoming and, and really really open to to new ideas and and obviously the the fact that you can go on some of these places that you mentioned before and ask questions and then there's an expert that takes the time to reply is is absolutely amazing yeah i think that's one of the real differences with working with an open source project is that 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 um line between user and developer is much thinner you know some in a lot of the developers are users as well, and and you can interact with them directly, uh, and um, that that's a really fantastic thing. And I think it's that community that really makes QGIS the success that it has been has become. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that as well. Uh, again, like I, I mentioned earlier, I think a lot of people listening to this will sort of understand what QGIS is as a piece of as a piece of software. So we understand that it's a a collection of tools. It's a standalone desktop editor it's open source it has a lot of the same sort of things we might find in arcgis there's we can do data visualization we can do data processing we can do a whole bunch of other things in there but just like arcgis it's part of a, a wider environment can you talk a little bit about some of the things or some of the other products or perhaps software around qgis that it plugs into that it plays nicely with yeah, that, that's, I think, one of the things that's made, you know, another aspect that's made QGIS possible is that there are other libraries that are kind of under the hood, if you will, with QGIS that um, you don't really, as a, you know, beginner using it need to know are operating. But for example, there is a software library called Goodle and Ogre, or GDAL and OGR, depending on how you like to pronounce those. And those are for reading and writing different file formats. And uh, so that, that means that QGIS can just read a silly number of file formats. And that's really one of the first reasons I started using it was because I might have a client that would give me, you know, a KML file. And instead of having to import it into ArcGIS, I could just drag and drop and pull it right into QGIS and work with it. There's also a library called Proj, which is how QGIS deals with projections. And then it also has um, um, a Python 3 environment that you can work with for, and it has a, you know, there's a PyQGIS API that you can use to do processing. There are, um, in the toolbox, there are other 
tools from other open source projects. There's one called Grass and there's another called Saga that you can use. So QGIS becomes in itself kind of a mini stack of geospatial tools. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's amazing how many different sort of and some of these, like Grass, for example, and, and Saga GIS, these are standalone products, but they're integrated into QGIS, and you don't actually notice that you're using something that's not perhaps QGIS in itself because the integration is so tight. I think it's really, really well done. So what I meant with the, this question I asked you just before, that was, the, I mean, you did a great job of explaining how QGIS is built and what it's built on top of, but I was actually referring to the wider environment because I know there's some other tools around QGIS. Yeah, I, I know there's databases, for example, that it plays nicely with, but there, there, there's also there's also an offline solution, for example. Can you talk a little bit about some of those things that are sort of outside the immediate project of, of QGIS, but are, are really um, integral to, to the, the piece of software itself? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think you must be referring to the fact that there's a QGIS server, for example, which is um, a piece of software that allows you to serve out QGIS map documents as OGC services. There is um, There are two pieces of software for field data collection on smartphones and other mobile devices that are based on QGIS. There's one called QField and there's another called Input. And so you can find those apps in, in the Android store. And I believe they are now both available on Apple as well, which was a, a, a no small feat. And um, so th there is an ecosystem of other related software around the desktop QGIS as well at this point. And QGIS, of course, connects nicely with a variety of different databases, which, which is a huge plus when you're working with geospatial data. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, I enjoyed your most recent um, interview on PostGIS, and that that is a great database. You know, it, it when you combine all the inherent features in QGIS with its support for an enterprise spatial database, like you get with PostGIS and PostgreSQL, you have a seriously powerful package. And as was covered in that podcast, that, you know the, the integration with PostGIS and the support for it in, in QGIS is, is fantastic. You can open up the database manager, connect to um, PostGIS and other databases as well, write SQL right within QGIS, it gets passed right into the PostGIS database and returns the result. So you can actually you know, execute SQL, um, full SQL in QGIS, and it's, it's very fast because you're interacting directly with the database. So um, it's a very powerful environment from that perspective. And an another thing that is kind of along this, those lines and processing is that um, there's also support for, um, for R in the QGIS processing toolbox. So you can run R scripts through QGIS as well. That's, uh, I think that's absolutely amazing. I mean, like we said before, QGIS is, is almost a, a stack and it what is a stack in itself. It's integrating a whole bunch of other software products. But then that I think what really makes it a, an amazing um, tool is that that environment around it, the ecosystem that it lives within, uh, I think is it's an absolutely incredible project. And of course, being open source, the barriers to entry are you know, next to none. I mean, of course, there's a learning curve. That's the case with any new software, but you don't have to go out and pay a ton of money. You can just get started. And I think that's absolutely incredible. Yeah, that's something I think is really important um, for me personally, is it just that um, kind of the democratization of technology where you do reduce the barrier for entry. And when I've taught courses at my local university, most of the students have come through an ESRI curriculum and and if they want to, for example, do what I do, 
using Esri software when they graduate, they're in for a bit of a surprise with the licensing. And the fact that you can um, give people an alternative in that scenario for completely free and open source software that achieves all of the same goals really allows them once they graduate in that, in that scenario to, you know, start working immediately and, and use all these tools. Yeah. And I'm definitely not here to, to give Esri a hard time. This is, this was the software that I learned on. I cut my teeth on Esri products and I still think it's, they're absolutely incredible, but of course, you know, it's, there, there is a barrier to entry. There's no question there. And I think what's been really interesting for me watching the, the QGIS project throughout the years is that sort of slow education where, you know, now in, in Denmark, for example, a lot of the a lot of lo- local councils are you know powered by open source in, in terms of GIS software anyway, and they're moving more and more towards QGIS. And I think part of that is because it's so much easier to to understand what you're actually getting. I found with Esri, for example, oftentimes it was difficult to to budget. You know, how much is this actually going to cost me? And there was always the you know my license only went to there, and oh, but I need that other tool over there and i need that to be able to connect to that and uh, like don't get me wrong i think there there is a learning curve with, with open source software there, there definitely is but i think now the fact that it's being recognized as a real competitor or a real alternative i should say to to other you know paid software products is absolutely amazing yeah and i i'm certainly not um just to be to be clear, I'm not anti-Esri by any means either. I grew up on Esri, and I was an Esri user and had my own license number for many many years. So I'm you know, very familiar with with ArcGIS and it's you know fantastic software. And I think most people that begin implementing something like QGIS, you know, there's a practical side to all of this. These are just tools. They're yeah. simply tools to get something done with spatial data. And so. You know, it's, I always think, you know, you have, you know, not just one screwdriver in your tool set, you need more than one. And so I think most people begin working with a hybrid environment where they use, um, you know, ArcGIS or ArcGIS Pro for some things that it's really good at. And then they, you know, turn, open up QGIS for other things that are more convenient there for them. And I think most people find that kind of hybrid environment is, you know, more the most practical way to get their job done. If nothing else, I mean, it's just, it's always an advantage to know more, to, to have sort of more tricks up your sleeve, if you will, to have more tools in, in the tool case. Uh, that, that's always going to be a benefit. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things that I personally think is really exciting about QGIS is the plugin environment. Uh, and I, I'm pretty sure it wasn't born with a plugin environment right at the start of the project's life. Could you tell me how that came about? Yeah, well, just because I'm not a developer, so I, I don't have you know all the answers to that. But the plugin environment, I man, I must have come in sometime around in the the one X line, I believe, is when plugins started um, coming into it. And so the part the, the part of that was developing a, um, a the PyQGIS API that plugins were written in. So now the, the latest branch of QGIS, QGIS three X, um, which is at version three ten now has a Python, a Python API based in Python 3. And so that's what all the, the plugins are, are written in for the most part. And at this point, there are something like five or 600 plugins out there available that do, you know, some are very small, some are very complex. They do, they do all sorts of things. Um, so the, the, the plugin ecosystem is um, fantastic. And there's new interesting plugins coming online all the time. Do you have any favorites that you w- would like to mention here? 
Oh boy, yeah. Actually, in my book, Discover QGIS 3X, I have an appendix on the top 50 useful plugins that I think are interesting. So there, there's a lot, but um, you know, the, the, just I think one of the ones people use out of the box most frequently is one called Quick Map Services that allows you to pull in base maps via WMS services, WMTS um, into QGIS. So you can with that pull in OpenStreetMap and Google Maps and Esri base maps and, and all sorts of things. You know, something like, you know, there's well over a hundred different base maps you can pull in with that plugin. So that's really handy. And there are others for integrating with OpenStreetMap, like um, downloading data from OpenStreetMap right into QGIS. And the nice thing about the, the plugin environment and QGIS in general is that when you open up the plugin manager, you can just search for keywords and it'll filter the list based on that. So they're quite easy to discover and install. Yeah, I think it's it's so clever. The the whole system is really clever there, and and really intuitive. So I, I'm I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Um, do you ever see really popular plugins being integrated into the the project itself, sort of graduating from being a plugin to to being a, a full blown part of the QGIS product? Absolutely, and there's something like that happening right now. That one of the another really powerful plugin is called Time Manager, which allows you to um, animate data with a temporal component in QGIS. And that has become so mature and, and popular that there's now discussions on bringing that into core. And I think in the next LTR that might actually, um, that, which stands for long-term release, um, that may actually be the uh, a core part of QGIS. So that does happen. You mentioned something really interesting before, and that was the integration provided uh, presumably through a plugin to to the open source StreetMap project. So uh, I know there's there's a couple of different ones out there that I've used anyway, and some of them you can edit directly in OpenStreetMap, I believe, and other ones let you download data. And I think that, I mean, that that's pretty amazing. But I think what's truly fascinating here is it feels like QGIS is sort of moving towards being that default gateway to, to a lot of other projects. Because it's so, now I'm not a developer, either but because it feels so easy to, to to create a plugin instead of saying to to a user here's an api interact with that people are taking it one step further or companies are taking one step further and saying okay well here's a plugin to qgis which a lot of people are using anyway and this is the way this is the window you look into our world with and i think can you see more of that happening in the future yeah absolutely i because there's you know, we mentioned grass and saga and there are other um libraries of of geoprocessing tools out there like Whitebox and Tau DEM. And um, those are all now um, going to be can, the, the, basically the, the processing environment in QGIS is set up so that um, those can be added to the, the toolbox um, by a plugin. So there are people that are writing plugins so that you can bring more specialized geoprocessing tools from other projects into QGIS. And so now there's got to be another half dozen of those that act so that you can bring in, you know, other you know, hundreds of other tools into QGIS and start using QGIS as a front end for those um, libraries as well. Yeah, um, a recent example of this was the integration with uh, Google Earth Engine, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and I haven't even had time to play with that. Um, you know, that's one of the the exciting things and one of the challenging things with QGIS is that it has a really rapid release schedule and things evolve quickly. And um, sometimes with a new release, they, they come out with these change logs. So you can go online to the visual change logs and see all the new features in the latest release of QGIS. And um, 
it's kind of, uh, it's like Christmas morning where you, you know, say, oh, wow, now you can do this. Now you can do this. There's a tool that does this. And, um, and usually it, it's challenging just to keep up with all the, the new features and, and have a scenario where you can play with it or try it out. Yeah, could um, I, I'm not sure if I missed it there, or if you mentioned it, but um, could you give us an idea of the the release dates for these? Is it every six months, year? Well, what does that look like? The the release of, of new features or or updates? There's a new stable release every four months. So that four month period is built as uh, three months of feature development, and then the last month of um, bug fixing. So um, every or three times a year, there's a new stable release of QGIS. And because of that, several years ago, there was a, um, a decision made that every spring, the the latest long-term release would, or latest stable release would be called the long-term release. So that would, that release, um, which is um, 3.4 now, would be supported for an entire calendar year with no new features, but bug fixes. So, you know, like with when 3.4 became the new long-term release, um, and then four months later, 3.6 comes out. Any bugs that were fixed in 3.6 get backported into that 3.4, but not none of the new features. So it becomes a, a stable piece of software that most production shops would choose, you know, so that they can just have a stable version for an entire year. Um, because otherwise, mo- most, you know, I, I, uh, I'm one of the people who is always installing the latest version to, to play with the new tools. Um, but most people are going to prefer working with the, the long-term release because it, it's stable and um, they can get their work done with it. Yeah, which, which is obviously perfectly understandable. Um, with, with that stable long-term release, what happens when, when the new version of that comes out? Does that mean that all my QGIS projects that I have saved on, on, my, on my desktop, are they uh, broken? No, QGIS is remarkably backwards compatible. I, I've even I've never had a problem in QGIS 3x even opening up older 2x map documents. So uh, it, it's it's um, yeah, there's no issues that I've ever encountered with that. So I've said this a couple of times already. I'm pretty sure a lot of people listening to this are familiar with the project in in some way, shape, or form. But um, perhaps you could give us a few hints and tips because it's it's always changing, it's always evolving. Are there things? buried in the project that you think people should know about that perhaps aren't immediately obvious? Yeah. So the, I think one of the real powers of QGIS is the expression engine, which is almost becoming a language into itself. So there are, you know, you'll, you'll run into the, the standard functions in that. So the expression engine is where, um, let's say you want to calculate values in a new field or something like that, um, or, or select features. Um, so the, with the expression engine, you get the standard character functions that you parse characters or numeric functions for converting floating point to integer and things like that. But there, there are hundreds of other functions in there for dealing with color and fuzzy math and fuzzy logic, um, time, all, all sorts of things. So these functions can be um, also used with these things called data-defined overrides. And it's a little difficult to explain in a podcast, but basically these are ways that you can, for example, um, instead of pointing um, an input to a tool to a field, you can actually use an expression for the input to that tool. Or for symbology, you can use expressions. Instead of a color, you can have a color function that defines how a layer is rendered. And so there's a, a tremendous amount of power when you start diving into that aspect of QGIS. 
sounds like I have I have a lot to learn. <laughs> I was just going to add, like you know, another part of a second part to that question is the data visualization tools in QGIS. If I was to go back five years, the geo processing was fantastic. So you know, QGIS has been a great processing, you know, data manipulation environment for many years. But the data visualization and cartography five years ago was still a bit lacking. And I feel like that's one of the areas that it's grown incredibly in recent years. And it's become a state-of-the-art cartography data visualization engine at this point. Um, so it incorporates things like blending modes that you find in Adobe Illustrator and Acrobat, or I mean, uh, Photoshop rather. Um, these are standard things for blending one layer with another. There's layer effects where you can add drop shadows and outer glows to features and um, lots of interesting renderers. Um, there's another one called geometry generators, which uses the expression engine to change how a feature is rendered based on an expression. So for example, if you have a, a polygon layer, you can render it as centroids or you can render it as an interior buffer, you know, and those are just two very simple examples, but, um, that is one way in which QGIS is starting to develop new paradigms for how we deal with spatial data that are very unique to it. That's really interesting. So I wouldn't need to create my own centroid layer as such. I can just say, instead of visualizing these polygons as polygons, show me the centroids, thanks. And it'll calculate that on the fly and show me that on the map. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. And you can do other things um, that are quite a bit more... Um, fancy with, with those expressions, because as I was mentioning before, another part of the expression engine is spatial exp expressions. So there, there is, you know, there's a, there's a buffer function in there and there's a, a you know, a centroid function, for example. And, and, um, so you can do a lot with that, with those, um, tools. That, that's that, that's one of the things that leads to the creation of a humongous amount of data. You know, if you have to render out centroids or buffers for, for every time you make an operation or something like that, if that becomes a step in your processing chain, I mean, you can quickly create a whole bunch of data and, and get a little bit lost in it. So I think that's fantastic, that idea of, of being able to render objects as different objects without having that sort of step in the middle. Yeah, anytime you know, you can get away without having to create a new flat file or something like that in a GIS workflow. It's a win. So I absolutely agree with you there. Another thing that I think that's really cool about QGIS, although I, I have to admit here, I haven't played with it a whole bunch myself, is that that sort of built-in model builder. Can you talk a little bit about that? What what can we do with that? Yeah, I think that's something that um, to a casual user, they, they um, don't even realize it's there. But there is a um, a graphical modeler that lets you add data sources and, and processing algorithms in a visual workflow and basically create your own custom processing tool from that. Um, and so, you know, that that's you know, the automation of a, a GIS workflow is um, always, you know, the best way to go when you're going to be doing something over and over again. Um, you know, so if you're going to be doing a site selection analysis, for example, um, you know, one of the steps might be, you know, um, a certain distance from streams. And if you set up this whole, run through the whole process, you know, step by step, and then your client or your manager decides, well, what happens if we change that buffer distance? What happens to the output in the, in the, in the site selection model? 
um, you'd have to start from scratch. But if you have it set up in a model, you can just go in and adjust that one setting and rerun it and, and get the result. So um, it's a great environment. You can even nest, you can use one model tool as an as another processing tool in a model. So it's it's quite robust. It, so, it sounds a lot like the environment people might be used to, used to in, in Esri products. And I think one of the magical things about what they do over there anyway is being able to export that to a Python script, you know, a standalone Python script that you could run somewhere else. Of course, it has to go and get a license at some stage, but the idea that you don't have to be in your, your graphical model builder when you run that, I think is really powerful. Is that something that QG, QGIS allows you to do? Yeah, absolutely. You can export a model to a Python script. Um, and so for people who want to get um, familiar with the PyQGIS API, that's a great starting place because you can see what your model looks like as a, a script and then run it from the um, the Python prompt in QGIS and, and execute it that way. I'm really pleased you mentioned that because that uh, that was a huge help for, for me when I was learning Python, being able to do that. You know, build the model graphically first so you understand how it, how it fits together in a very visual way and then you can play around with it, make sure it's running and then export it and, you know, pull it to pieces, see how it was put together. And, and yeah, I, I think that's a really clever way of introducing yourself to, to Python, to programming. Absolutely. And um, so, yeah, the Python scripts can also are also supported as standalone algorithms in the processing toolbox. Um, there's there's a Python editor in QGIS that you can um, use to, you know, experiment with some code before you run it. It's it's um, a very nice and often overlooked part of the, the interface. Kurt, I'm just a little bit conscious of time here, but, but before I let you go, I've got a couple more questions. And, and one of them is, what can we expect to see from the QGIS project in the future? Is there anything on the, you know, on the drawing table that you think is particularly exciting, or can you see any sort of trends in terms of development? Boy, that's a good question. I, w I wish I had the crystal ball. You know, at this point, it's pretty mature, but there, there are some new features that came out with three. Like there's now a, a native QGIS 3D environment. You can open up a 3D window. And um, that has been, you know, it's a little, it was functional, but rudimentary when it first came out. And every version of QGIS that is growing tremendously. So I expect that to continue. You can animate 3D, 3D data. You can create keyframes. And so I think I expect that environment to, to continue to evolve. There's also support for a, a data model called Mesh Data, which is um, kind of sort of a hybrid between vector and raster. It has components of each, and it's commonly used for meteorological data, weather data, for example. And QGIS will support several file formats of Mesh Data and allow you to animate and visualize you know, weather through time in the interface. And so I, ex I expect that support for Mesh Data to grow as well, since it's also fairly new. And I'm, I'm sure there's, there's been some other uh, big changes recently to um, some of the underlying libraries, Proj and Google, for example. And so in QGIS, there's been a lot of development into you know making sure QGIS is working against those libraries recently. And I think one of the other areas that it's, it's, there's been a lot of discussion on recently is, is how to improve the documentation. Because of the the recent, uh, because of the rapid release schedule, the documentation becomes um, a lot to manage, and it's done a lot by volunteers. And so there's been a lot of discussions on how to make that better. And so I'm, I'm sure that will improve as well. 
Kurt, I, I've really appreciated you coming along and sharing your insights and your experience with the QGIS project. It's been fascinating. I've learned a ton and I can I can hear that I've got a lot to learn <laughs> with regards to QGIS. So, so thank you so much for that. Before I let you go, where, where can the listeners go to, to reach out to you if they want to learn more or follow along or if they have questions for you? Let's see, my, uh, my website is uh, birdseyeviewgis.com. I'm also um, on Twitter as Geomenke. And I've recently started up a new endeavor called the Q Cooperative. Um, so people can find me there at qcooperative.net. That's a, an umbrella organization between myself and um, s- several QGIS developers to provide QGIS support services. So I'm available at all those various locations. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kurt. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. And that's it for another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel, and I want to give a huge thank you to everyone who took the time to listen in again today. Much appreciated. As I mentioned at the top of the, the interview at the start of this podcast episode, if you could do me the favor and subscribe if you haven't already, it'd be greatly appreciated. And also, please, please, please share the podcast with someone who, who might be who you think might be interested in. It would really help me out, would help grow the show, would help to spread the word and, and create a community around what we're doing here. Uh, and lastly, yeah, check out our socks, Mapscaping socks. Just Google that. We made them for you. We hope you like them. Any feedback would be greatly appreciated. As always, you are more than welcome to reach out to me across the different social media channels. You'll find us on Mapscaping on Twitter and Facebook and map underscore view on Instagram. Uh, yeah, you can Google me. You'll find me on, on LinkedIn as well. I'm reasonably active there and I, I would love to connect with you. I would love to hear from you. Feel free to reach out. Until next time, bye.